Kia ora and welcome. I'm Boris Lamont and you're listening to the New Zealand Wine Podcast. Thanks for joining us for this episode where we're speaking with Claire Allen from Huia Vineyards in Marlborough, the top of the South Island of New Zealand. Claire and her husband Mike started the winery back in the mid-90s and have been going great since then. So let's go have a chat with Claire. Well, hi, Claire. Hi, Boris. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the podcast. You're down on the vineyard at the moment? Yes, I'm actually in, in the vineyard lab, looking out the window at a rather kind of slightly cloudy winter's day. Yeah, and a little bit chilly. It is a bit chilly, but yeah. there's lots of snow around, snow around the edge of the valley, yeah. Lovely, as long as it keeps away. Just visible is fine. Yeah. And Hui has been running for some time. I think it was back in 94 that you first planted the vines down there. But where did your journey into wine start? I guess uh, at the end of school, I guess I guess growing up really, my father was interested in drinking wine and, and wine. We had quite a lot of wine from uh, South Africa and, and I guess Europe growing up and I wasn't really a I was more interested in wine I guess because it was it was about travel and we had I think some Portuguese ports and all of that sort of thing and so as a lot of my family traveled and lived overseas in interesting places it seemed to be all part of that and they'd come back would you know talk about these places and talk about various bits and pieces. And where was that for you Where, where were you growing up? I grew up in behind Christchurch, actually in okay. behind in behind Waipara, Waipara, there on a sheep and beef high country farm. So yes, there was that side of it, and there was basically quite a international side of it, where we had a lot of people coming from around the world, a lot of young people coming and um, working on the farm. There, there used to be in the sixties. There used to be a lot of, I guess the kind of like woofers, they would come and they would get paid a bit and live, be all found on the farm. And you know, young people doing a gap year or young people looking at getting into farming. You know, a lot of people from Australia, South Africa, and in fact, whatever, possibly even Zimbabwe. And then also from the UK and, and Scotland to in particular, because of course, English, it was easier if you speak English, and the sort of farming that was all being shared at that time. So I grew up with a lot of diff- a lot of foreigners in the house as a matter of course. And so the idea of, along with family who lived all over the place, the idea that the world was somewhere that you went to go and see as soon as you could was, was very prominent. And so foods and wines were really interesting, particularly wine, because my father's family was yeah, very interested in, very travelled, very interested in having wine with dinner. We'd have start off with a sherry and then have white wine and then according to what was the main meal, red wine and sometimes even, well definitely a port, sometimes even a dessert wine. And as a, as a small person, you know, of course, I'm sure being overseen carefully by my parents, I was allowed to taste this. Certainly my aunts, and I had a lot of aunts on both sides of the family who were well-traveled, were very strong on, 
on me not to, to grow on me growing up on all of us growing up with an idea of what of what I guess culture uh, an aspect of culture as they saw it sharing that global culture of of wine in particular and food because food here was fairly basic and it did take a while to actually catch up with the rest of the world I think I was 10 when one of my brothers introduced my mother to garlic it was a, it was, a, it was the beginning of, of a awakening of the taste <laughs> yeah. And uh, things only got better from there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes. No, we we didn't have um, certainly didn't have the variety of ingredients that that we do now and access to them. Mm. It sounds like maybe the wines that you were exposed to were quite a step ahead of of what cuisine you were able to partake in. Yes, and that's because my father was in charge of the wine buying. And it was very, it was a very simple life up on the farm as well. You know, things came up in great big boxes, and it was you made everything yourself. You know, I was very keen to try and swap my homemade bread and and walnut and honey sandwiches for some nice white white stuff that was at the local school. You know, other friends with you know things like white bread sandwiches. Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) Anything that's different and not not from your own kitchen is often. Looks better when you're a kid, doesn't it? Yes, and, and I mean, we grew up with everything was mended and recycled, and it wasn't a, a financially rich upbringing, but it was knowledge, information, and rich, and lots of characters yeah. involved. And what was your dad's heritage? What, why had he? How had he come about being exposed to to wine? And um, well, he grew up in a big family that had been well. A, I guess it was wealthy, and mm-hmm. they bounced between England and New Zealand. But he was the youngest of eleven, so oh. that they, that kind of bore, gets rid of quite a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so he had enough deposit on a farm, and I think yeah. that's about it. So his upbringing was yeah. So he he'd been exposed to that too through his his childhood. He lost his parents when they were, he was very young, being the youngest, mm. and was picked up by his sisters and their husbands, who, who were, you know, entertaining and having mm. a life. And where did that lead for you? What? So you spent that time just outside of the Waipara? I, I went to I went to school, and then uh, leaving school, it was one of those things where I remember saying to my mother, "I just don't like having." I don't like drinking gin and tonics and what do you do or what do you, you know, I don't like uh, Coca-Cola drinks. And she said, well, because she didn't like wine at all. Uh, she said, well, there's always, you could always have a white wine and, um, but I just, you know, so disgusting. But she'd seen that. We, you know, <laughs> so I, I started just looking at what was available. Just It was just a side interest. And after leaving school and then, getting involved in the, I'm being unsure of what to do next, I got involved in the restaurant scene. And initially, as many people do, in the front of house and then getting more interested in the, in the cooking end of things. And so then, of course, I ended up going to Australia with Mike, who we'd met, going to Roseworthy College in South Australia. I was obsessed with wine by this stage, you know, really fascinated by the way you 
producers in cooking and I transferred my interest because I'd been studying how to become you know, chefing. I'm, my interest had changed from that to actually wine. And so in South Australia, studied wine at the place called Roseworthy Agricultural College. And then actually after working there for a bit, came back to New Zealand. And that's when we came back to Marlborough. We actually came, came back to Marlborough because the wines from Marlborough and at the end of the 80s were starting to look really interesting, particularly Sauvignon Blanc and the sparklings. The champagne houses were here and there's some really interesting sparklings starting to come out. And we came back and had a look at it. such a dynamic industry at that time. And of course, it's continued to be so. We decided we'd try and find a job in Marlborough and see what was going on. Okay, so you enjoyed Roseworthy, got your qualifications and came over to Marlborough and just you'd heard things, some good things were going on and just to see what, what might be available for you. Well, we, we tasted the wines and we yeah. thought, well, this, it's all very well applying for vintage, but if you actually turn up and are there, then you can, you can have an interview. And as I had family, my family is further south mm-hmm. and Mike my, my comes from Hawke's Bay, we thought we'd try... Uh, Hawke's Bay or Marlborough Hawke's Bay and then around Auckland and we actually never got any further than Marlborough because Mike got a job with, with Kevin at Cloudy Bay and I got a job at Corbin's and so that's how we started here and after about nine months here in Marlborough we saw this vineyard which was then a rather rundown orchard for sale and we jumped on this and pitched and it was quite a well, it was quite a challenge. So you'd obviously, uh, so just jumping back, so you'd obviously met uh, Mike, your husband. At, was that at, at college? No, just before college. Right, yeah. okay. Did you go mm-hmm. through Roseworthy together? Yes. It was actually, uh, the whole Roseworthy thing came about through a friend of, of his, um, Mac Mason, whose family started up Sacred Hill. Dave Mason, Dave and Mac, Mark started Sacred Hill mm-hmm. at that time. It was fantastic. It was really early days. And um, Matt McNall is down in Otago with his label Quest, as well as being still in the family. And he had just completed that course, or he was in the middle of completing it when, when we were talking about this. So it was really under his suggestion that we went to, uh, to Australia to study. And uh, Rosemary was a, an accepted university, so you, if you wanted to, you could go to Europe and places like that, and, and it was accepted in the old world as being yep. of, of a university because they were very fussy because they wanted to have a sense of history. I guess, yes, a sense of history. They, the old world was quite interested in places that had like a, a winery and a vineyard uh, as, well as, as well as the lab. Mm-hmm. So, yes, anyway, so that's how we ended up Going, going over there. And, right, um, okay. And then you, you, ca- you came to Marlborough, d- did some vintages, but also spotted some land. Yes, spotted some land and decided, well, look, let's just see. And so we, we bought it and then it took us a couple of years to get organised between working and what we were doing and planting and finding the right material to plant because you had to order in advance and there were new new material coming in. It was a very, very changing, exciting place at that time. Everything was done 
very differently. Even from, from when we started planting, it was over two years. The first year we planted was very basic, and already the second year they had laser abilities to actually line up the rows. And so technology kind of swooped into Marlborough, and from Corbin's, I went on and worked at a place called Vintech, which was a first sort of contract-making facility. Where I think we had about 30 clients, a lot of whom have become big players here in the industry. But at that stage, the North Island wineries were just having a look. During the 90s, we watched a lot of the North Island wineries literally replace themselves and bring themselves down here. You know, lots of tanks coming down on, on trucks, etc., a lot of re readjustment from Gisborne and Hawke's Bay into Marlborough, and then just an addition to that happening. So it's been interesting to watch all of that. So the Huia story, we planted in 94, we started planting Sauvignon Blanc, and then in 95, we managed to access some clone 95, Chardonnay Perona clone of Dijon from Merceau, Dijon 95, that's from the Vine Improvement Group and also some Pinot Dijon 115 from the Vine Improvement Group and also um, a Pinot 375, which was a champagne sparkling Pinot clone and another, I think it was a clone 96 Chardonnay, which was a champagne clone as well, which luckily we only had about 80 plants of because it was very difficult to manage it sort of tried to go rotten every year so we planted this vineyard with I guess the key the key wines that we really wanted to make at that stage which was sparkling because it's amazing it is amazing from here and Pinot, Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc this is the original home block okay and and still have those vines there we do. I think we have, we, we are going to replant around about three quarters of an acre of Sauvignon Blanc that's just a little bit not doing quite so well. Replant it with some Syrah and a little bit of Viognier right. just to have like a small, about a sort of 200 case blend of Syrah on the stones. Because it's, it's very interesting, the Syrah here. There's a whole lot of really interesting varieties you never want to have too much of them but they are they are really really fabulous here and Sauvignon Blanc is so important but it's it's really this whole valley could grow at that superb level a lot of different varieties a lot of other places around the world grow these other varieties very very well too Mm. whereas it seems to be quite difficult to grow Sauvignon Blanc really well in a lot of places Okay, well, that's, um, that's interesting to be putting in some new varietals. Yes, yes, yeah. And that, that's come about from seeing others have success with those in similar spots? I think, um, well, there's a couple of varieties. It'd also be very interesting well, on the stones where it's hot, replanting some Malbec as well. But, yeah, I mean, it's not something you can plant everywhere. In the valley, they need they need quite a warm spot, yep. and and that is what we have there. Yes, there are there's some interesting white varieties to put in, but once again, you, you do it for more of an interest factor. Whereas yeah. I think where we we make pinot here, but it's really nice to have a little bit of another red as well, and then you can see 
the difference. And it seems that Sarah, because it, for some reason Sarah seems to do well here. In some of the more colder years, it can get a bit peppery, but essentially it's like a really, really, really lovely, uh, fine, you know, Cote de Rhone kind of, uh, Rhone Valley sort of Syrah. Certainly nothing like an Australian Syrah, simply because it's not hot enough. So it's probably the most interesting other variety in my mind, apart from Pinot, Pinot Noir here. Yeah. And certainly would only ever be a tiny amount just because it is so site-specific. Yeah, nice. Oh, that'd be interesting to see how that how that turns out. Yeah. And so you, you planted in 94 and first harvest was, was 96? 96, a very small amount of those 94 vines, just a little hand-picked, but really we didn't have a proper harvest until 97. How did that go? What was the learning like for you across those first few years? Well, in those first, uh, and until 2001, we actually, Mike was by that stage working at Vavasaur with Glenn Thomas and we actually took the grapes over there and made the wines. In 98 we bought, we actually bought the juice back and started to ferment and, and put into maturation anything that we could do in barrel because we had built the winery by then but we didn't put the full winery in the refrigeration until 2000. It was interesting when we'd been I'd been winemaker at Lawson Stry Hills since 92 so yeah we had both been in positions of responsibility of just applying that information, I guess, to to the vines. What have been some of the highlights since then for you over the years? Well, over the years, I guess the being able to implement a very well. When we first started, I rang up the Biodynamic Council and um, Association and asked what we needed to do to be in that world, and it was still very. It was great, but it was still very. Farm, but I guess farming relatively unstructured, as in there wasn't a particular format. It was just, well, you're allowed to use this and this, and you have to work out yourself how you're going to use it. And as, which is perfectly fair enough, but we weren't in the kind of experimental situation. We were sort of balancing full time jobs with trying to plant a vineyard. So we, we did use some conventional tools for a while, and then in 2000, well, we went. Um, we became part of the sustainable program in 2000 when it started, and carbon neutral program in 2002 or four, and certainly, and then joined the organic biogrow in 2008 and Demeter in 2009. So, I guess what's been one of the most exciting is actually really learning more about the the kind of the natural way that you can grow everything and how how you can work within nature's cycles to balance out what essentially is a monoculture and it's up to because we have a whole lot of vines it's up to us to add in diversity and the and the animals that we have here and i think that's been it's challenging at times because you have to make more effort at times but taking that forward is probably one of the most valuable parts of the whole activity over the years. And, and what's fun for us is our two daughters. That's what they're interested in. They're really interested in, in the biodynamic and organic methodology and the earth science, the old earth science, cosmic energy methodology, bringing that into maintaining its access into the vineyard and, and increasing it. So 
I guess in a way through not through being unconventional and being more natural, we have kids involved, and that's always fun, of course. So I guess that's probably one of the most delightful aspects of the whole thing. Yeah. So so you went through a few different initiatives and, and programs, and, and how does the Mana Collective fit in with, with those? Now, the Mana Collective started yeah, in the, well, quite a few years ago now, and what it was was all of us, when MJ Loza was at Saracen, he and Therese Herzog, they started talking about it, and there were a little group of us who were organic bio, and then we enticed a couple of others into the group who wanted to be that way and it actually just gave them the tipping point to move in that direction. And so what a, initially it was a really great group to, we shared a lot of information about the vineyards and we shared information about making wine because it is completely different. You have you just have to see things differently on both, both ends. And it was a little like being an island in those days and also being so small. So... Since then, we've continued to do that. You know, we talk about talk about all that sort of stuff with each other. Anytime anyone has a problem, we, we all, some of us are more versed in vineyards, some of us are more versed in, in winery, and some of us are more versed in marketing. And so between the three points, it's a great group to be in. And we have joined, we joined together for promotional events like when the New Zealand wine growers bring over sommeliers, we usually are able to do a presentation to them. And it's very, it's good for both sides. It, it, it's, we're, the, we're the side of the industry that the sommeliers want to see. But of course, because the whole thing's on a levy paying system, they also see a lot of the big guys, which they can see more readily in their own markets. So they're dying to see, I guess, wines and wineries that are not so visible on the global stage, being sommeliers. And we also have joined forces to do a couple of kind of harvest or not even harvest, but sort of gathering events and bought some New Zealand songs and et cetera, et cetera. We have done things like that once, once or twice a year for the last probably eight years. And it's, it's great. But a lot of it is, is the meetings, the communication, from sharing of resources and sharing of ideas and reconfirmation that you're not alone is really nice. Yeah, so it's that support and everyone on a similar journey because I suppose the last, what would have been 10, 15 years and in looking into organics and how that works has been a shared journey. Yes, a shared journey. And I mean, the, the MANA uh, group at this stage is only Marlborough. There's Organic Wine Growers New Zealand, which is national and that runs through the parent body of New Zealand wine growers. So it works differently whereas the Manu is just, just a local a local group. And it is good to share the information because um, everything that we say is true. And when you're the marketplace is very big and people often say all sorts of things just to actually make their make their product sell. And it may have nothing to do with what the original winery or the producer has put forward. There can be confusion. So sometimes it's hard for us who are artisanal and genuine to actually make no you know, be seen as what is the difference, you know, why why should we pay five dollars more for your bottle 
when these guys say that they're sustainable and etc cetera, etc cetera. so it's really nice to have a gathering of the group where we know that that's the reality we often deal with and to have that support and not to feel like oh you might as well just give up and go conventional because everybody's telling our story but it, but they're not doing our story and so the minor group is very good like that it gives you that support and reminds you why you care yeah nice we finish up on the question if you could have any wine with any one anywhere at any time who and what and when and where would that be yes it's and i haven't given you a lot of time to think about this one but <laughs> i think, well, I think the, one of the uh, one of the wines that really triggered an absolute love affair with wine and, and a biodynamic organic wine that registration was the uh, demand the flair the, the flowers in 1995 and um, i would have to have that with with the, the wee family and I think I would love to have that in Venice I think that would be very nice and I think that's very unlikely <laughs> these days to, for it to ever happen not not but, shortly sorry and just on the wine so just that wine again where is it from oh it's, it's a Burgundian wine it's a very yep. it's a famous house Domaine Le Fleff and flowers it's a beautiful vineyard yeah, um, just a wee. It's horrendously expensive. It was at the time, and um, this I, this was like 15, probably twelve years ago that I last tasted that vintage. But it's a memorable wine, and it's organic biodynamic, and it's, it is. That's the other reason to be doing all of this is some of the best, in my opinion, some of the best wines in the world are organic and biodynamic. Right. So the the proof is in the outcome. You get you do get a good product out of. Yes, the proof is in the glass. That. Yes. Very good. Hey, that's fantastic. Thank you, Claire. I do appreciate you coming on the show. No problems. Thank you. And, yeah, we look forward to seeing the Viognier and the Syrah yes. and seeing how, they, seeing how they turn out. Yes, indeed. Always good to have another challenge. Always good to have another challenge. Always good to have another, I'll just see what another variety does. Where nice. We're good. Let's hope that it will be. <laughs> I'm sure it will. Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Boris. We've been speaking with Claire Allen from Huia Vineyards in Marlborough at the top of the South Island in New Zealand. If you'd like to find out more, you can go to their website, which is huiavineyards.com. Uh, also be sure to check out some of the other great New Zealand wine podcasts where we have a chat with others in the wine industry here in New Zealand and listen to their stories. And go and have a look at podcast.nz where you'll find some other great podcast series. This episode was brought to you by bizzebu.com. Let's get your business started and we look forward to your company again very shortly. Hey, Kona Mai. Bye for now.